we've known that the problem has existed, you know, for my entire lifetime. I'm, I'm 29, and uh, just around the time I was born, James Hansen testified to Congress that climate change was real and that it was human caused, and the problem has only gotten worse throughout my whole life. But more and more people are waking up and taking action, and I think that comes from refusing to take. Uh, no as an answer and doing the hard work of um, of honing your skills and your knowledge base and again making use of this precious time that we have when we're alive on this earth <laughs> to advance something that we believe in whether or not we win you know the victory is not guaranteed but the effort is in your hands welcome to infinite earth radio we believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and with me is my co-host, Michael Green. Hey, Michael, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing today? Doing good. So today's your uh, your second uh day as a podcast host how, how's that all going for you so far you know so far so great and it was hard uh, first podcast came out a few days ago i uh, couldn't even get out to dinner without you know the the mobs and flashing lights uh, but slowly making my way into uh, podcast stardom but even uh, on a happier note here uh, spring is seems to be winning out the battle here in boston we're finally escaping those late season snow showers we're looking sunny and happy here. Nice, nice. So I'm really excited today. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the National Geographic series, "The Years of Living Dangerously," which you turned me on to, Michael. And now I'm binge watching the show. It's actually kind of halfway through the second season, so I, I started back at episode number one in in season one. It's really it's a fantastically well done series, and um, I, I don't know, you know, have you have you watched all the episodes? I think I've caught just about uh, all of them at this point. You know, one of the things that I've really appreciated is you don't have to watch them really in any sort of chronological order. Uh, you, you can kind of pick on the episodes and the topics that uh, really jump out to you, which makes me excited for today's guest. Yeah, and, and the series is, for folks who aren't following it, the executive producers are James Cameron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Jerry Weintraub, the late Jerry Weintraub. And... It's there are just the production value is just incredible, and the the science advisors on the program I think are fantastic. So you're you're, you're getting you know serious science. It's not just um, you know I think they're they're telling a pretty complete story. And I also found pretty fascinating about the about the series is they they're also looking about like how different audiences and different groups of people are kind of responding to the message of climate. And one of the earlier um, episodes was there was a young woman from. Texas, who's a, you know, who's a devout Christian, who is, you know, talking to devout Christians in Texas about climate change and science and how, you know, God, believing in God mean, doesn't mean you have to not believe in science. 
So it kind of hits such a broad spectrum of things. I think that's probably the thing that I find the most interesting, um, along with the kind of the production style. I think that that episode definitely jumped out to me uh, as well, and it really shows uh, something that I think is going to reflect well with our audience is that it really takes uh, all walks of people uh, to really take action on climate change. And it's not just a subset of us that are out there. It really uh, is something that needs to happen. Uh, and the years team grabs this great on a international global level. Uh, lots of different perspectives, lots of different skills uh, and solutions really come uh, at hand. Yeah. And um, so, and I think our today's guest is interesting because she was on uh, the Years of Living Dangerously um, in season two. But she's also now involved in Put a Price on It, which is some kind of follow-up effort to not just communicate what's being communicated in the Years of Living Dangerously, but to some follow-up so people know what to do next. Is that is that accurate? That's exactly what Camila Thorndike has set out to do. And Camila and I first crossed paths a few years ago uh, down in D.C. She was at the time living in uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, and we were both there talking about campaigns really at the grassroots levels uh, back in our home states and what the needed effort uh, was. And it was great to have the years team link up with her uh, while she was out in California doing some organizing. And uh, as we'll hear later in the show, they ended up following her around and she got to work with the team uh, and now continuing to build on that base. Uh, so she's definitely got a unique inroads in with uh, the this amazing project that National Geographic has brought together. Uh, and to me, I think that it builds on uh, the audience through the celebrities, through uh, the amazing camera work, the intriguing subject matters, and really the diversity of the messaging that they use. It's really highly effective. And I think that it's going to really help out with the Put a Price on It campaign. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll we'll end up talking about this series a lot over the coming months. But you know, the storytelling, right? You know, so they got Arnold Schwarzenegger is out with firefighters and actually out there working alongside firefighters and telling their story um, as a means of talking about climate change. Or Harrison Ford looking at palm oil and and traveling to Indonesia. It's just an amazingly well done series. So I highly recommend it. But but we should probably get to our guest today. Okay, great. So happy to have Camilla Thorndike joining us today on the podcast. Uh, Camilla is uh, in D.C. She's in the Pacific Northwest, uh, really seems to be everywhere working with millennials, engaging them on a topic near and dear to our heart here, um, putting a price on carbon. Camilla, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to have you here in Europe, uh, in the Pacific Northwest right now, if I've got that right. Yes, my mom turned 60 last month and all she wanted was a visit, so I'm enjoying the beautiful spring here. Where, where are you normally located? In D.C.? That's right. Gotcha. So tell us a little bit about uh, Put a Price on It, your organization. W what motivated you to start it and what's your goal? Well, I can't take credit for uh, Put a Price on It as an organization per se. Our The group that I co-founded is called Our Climate, and we're the organization that runs the engagement uh, wing for the Years of Living Dangerously TV documentary series on climate impacts. And together, our, our partnership has produced the Put a Price on It campaign. So the idea is to energize students, college students, high school students, 
and recent grads, young people in general, um, around what experts across the political spectrum say is the number one climate solution, and that's putting a price on, on carbon pollution. It takes a lot of education and encouragement to make sure that young people especially feel confident advocating for the policy. But once, they, then once they're hooked, it's amazing what they've been pulling off. Uh, it's amazing that you uh, have been able to team up with the years team as well, you know, on this project, uh, being able to educate and engage millennials uh, certainly is amplified and supported when you have uh, some real, uh, real communication expertise uh, brought on. So tell us a little bit about that uh, relationship, that partnership and, and what brought it about. It's a story that traces back to where I am today in Oregon. In 2014, I um, was kind of wrapped up in a beautiful constellation of events that, that came together to form our climate's predecessor, which was Oregon Climate. Um, the state legislature was interested in enacting a British Columbia-style carbon tax. A legislator out of Portland had introduced a bill the Citizens Climate Lobby was forming chapter, chapters around the state, and that's where I really started was as a chapter co-leader, um, appreciating CCL's ability to really invest in everyday people's ability to uh, advocate for a solution that can be a little bit intimidating um, until you're, you're again, well-equipped with the talking points and the understanding behind the policy. And so all those things were coming together, and a group of friends and uh, retirees and students here in the Rogue Valley in Southern Oregon, we looked around and wondered why there wasn't more action on climate. Um, sort of a purple area of the state, but certainly uh, many hotbeds of activism on issues of sustainability, but not much on climate. So when there was a big act on climate day, we thought, well, we don't have pipelines here, but what we're going to do is create a platform through the arts. So we created a uh, 110 foot long salmon mosaic made up of 1500 different little pieces of cardboard that people had decorated each in the shape of a house. Why did they love Oregon? What worried them about climate change? Um, and it was such a beautiful event. Everybody uh, couldn't believe it was a climate event, you know, which are usually very somber and <laughs> depressing. Um, this was a really happy occasion. And so we realized that art had this incredible power to kind of build bridges out to folks who didn't identify with the movement yet and kind of build glue within the movement, stronger relationships. So then when it comes down to the hard policy conversations we have, um, we have some rapport, we have some wiggle room to work with. Um, but we, in that event, realized we, we really hadn't uh, nailed the message. We didn't have one clear ask for people to go home. And, you know, how many of us have gone home after a big rally and been like, well, now what? We didn't want that to ever happen again. So we took that big salmon that we'd created and took it to the Capitol with a call for, for a carbon tax. And it was amazing. It really filled this niche that everyday Oregonians had not been engaged in the climate movement in this way before. And that's where the organization started. We introduced a number of bills over the years and rallied tens of thousands, well, thousands of people, certainly across the state to contact legislators, show up to the Capitol, learn how to lobby and get energized and, and Oregon still has to pass a carbon price, but um, I was giving a talk down in Southern California um, with, for the No Tomorrow event uh, on the Pomona campus, and Years was there filming these students who had put on the event, and so they filmed my keynote and then decided to follow our story as well and realized that you know we would be a good fit for their 
next series this this year that they this past year that they released the series was their second second year the first they really hadn't built out the the infrastructure so that once viewers realized what's going on to our world they knew what to do about it and that's where we've come in that's great you went from a giant salmon mosaic uh, to the years of living dangerously episode and uh, one thing that i find that really connects the two is the opportunity of communicating in new ways to grow our audience uh, so one of the things I had to happen to notice is that, uh, so Nikki Reed stars in your uh, episode, uh, and, and one of the things that she starts out with, uh, you know, her kind of opening monologue, if you were, uh, is on her home state of California and everything over the past few years about the drought. And, and she shares this, uh, what I find to be a, an effective personal narrative uh, to why she feels so active. And it's something that I'm seeing across the board uh, as more and more millennials get engaged, the ability to relate to each other and talk about uh, the changing world around us becomes ever more important. It's, you know, again, uh, whether it's a values alignment or just part of a story that another person in the audience clicks onto and says, ah, I, I can relate to that. Uh, so why do you think that these, you know, stories are working so well to to connect people in different places uh, and maybe around carbon pricing? Is there any stories that you hear that have really jumped out to you uh, from Oregon to D.C. to California that you've heard? Yeah, I think you're right that we're finally getting more creative in how how we bring people in. And there's nothing more powerful than story. Um, it's not, you know, unique to the efforts around carbon pricing, but I think the climate and sustainability movements in, as a whole have um, really gotten the memo that you can't just broadcast facts and figures and graphs and charts and expect people to feel, you know, reson that, that it, it won't resonate emotionally. And that when you don't have that emotional link, then you can't expect folks to prioritize this above, you know, their grocery list or paying the bills or whatever it might be. And so in the years episode on carbon pricing, the years team, you know, they are Emmy award winners. They really know what they're doing. And it's so inspiring to see how their craft is able to move people to action. Our episode is interwoven with a story on animal extinction in Africa. And it's, it's really powerful to see, you know, this kind of wonky topic on, on a policy solution paired with a story that anybody can relate to. You know, how many, how many of us are worried that the iconic, like, giraffes and tigers and lions and elephants of, that we've all known, even if we've never, you know, seen one, well, they're, they could go extinct in a, in, you know, a matter of years, a decade or two. Like it's really uh, in, in the, the elephants, in fact, that are tracked in this story due to an incredible web of impacts from poaching increasing due to drought that is leading more nomadic people to turn to farming and when their farms are destroyed by elephants who themselves can't find water and are then driven to fields and destroy those fields leaving farmers who were nomads with no livelihood then they turn to poaching and it's like this incredible 
downward spiral of tragedy that that until you have you know a, a story that's so compellingly shown you wouldn't know that that's the fingerprint of climate change is all over it and so to have that story interwoven with Nikki following our you know young advocates in Texas and California and across the country advocating for this really effective globally scalable solution it's like the puzzle pieces really come together and and it's been exciting. You know, we've shown that piece many times in D.C. We're still hosting screenings. In fact, um, in a couple of weeks, the Carbon Pricing Leadership um, Council out of the World Bank is showing another another screening of Priceless. And myself and Tom Erb, who's our field uh, was our field organizer in the Put a Price on It campaign and is himself still a student at Pomona College. He's uh, uh, excuse me, at Claremont. He's going to be speaking alongside me at that event. And it really has given us an incredible platform to prove that young people do care about this. And I, and I think that that's something that young people everywhere need to realize is that uh, you don't wait until some magical moment that you have this, you know, right title or the right position to speak out on something that you care about. It is actually your youth and your perspective of being in the most, you know, imperiled generation and facing, you know, down the barrel of this gun that that is the it's the core message that will resonate and move the rest of society. And in fact, if you don't speak out, you're missing this incredible opportunity, which is going to fade with time. And so that's our that's what we're doing is making sure that our advocates, whether it's, you know, Sam Blackwood, who's this incredible student up in Forehand University in New York, he's hosting panels with leading thought uh, thought leaders across the field and getting you know hundreds of students to come out um, because he's decided that it's now or never, right? And it, and it's just really inspiring to see how students are taking up the mantle of the Put a Price on It campaign and achieving really remarkable results. So, Camille, I think you know Michael turned me on to the years of living dangerously, and it is incredibly well done, right? It's a Major Hollywood producers, Arnold Schwarzenegger is one of the executive producers, James Cameron, uh, very high production quality, really great storytelling. And you mentioned the fact that it, you know, it kind of weaves the story of the extinction of the animals into the, you know, the stuff that the young people are doing to raise awareness. It, it also, it seems to hit on a pretty broad range of, of topics, right? So it's, it's the science. It really explains to people some of the things they should be concerned about with things like El Nino and, you know, the peat bogs. But it also also tells kind of the story of some of the resistance from conservative folks. So it, it hits on a lot of a lot of really great topics. One of the things I'm kind of interested in is the degree to which you think that the involving celebrities is important in the communication of the message. And you know, in this past election, we saw a lot of celebrities involved in endorsing one of the candidates who lost. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm kind of wondering the degree to which the celebrity involvement is a plus or a minus in terms of communicating the the message of climate crisis from your perspective. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, Nikki Reed addressed it directly in a Times Magazine op-ed. Uh, clearly, she had been criticized. I think as have been a number of celebrities, the ones who speak out on, you know, the Meryl Streep's who speak out at the Oscars about general uh, politics in general for not staying in their lane and disturbing fans who would have a different point of view. And so she wrote a piece articulating why 
why she felt morally compelled to speak out and use her platform and um, the resources she has at her disposal to, to really move the needle on something that she's personally invested in. Um, I think the election is interesting where in, in some way, you know, Hollywood coming out swinging so hard for one candidate and that not, uh, well, that obviously not being the deciding factor, it cemented, I think, for many people in of uh, maybe say like middle America that like, oh, the, the, the lefty coasts are, you know, completely out of touch with our reality. And here are these rich celebrities who are buying homes right and left and flying across the country. Like what right do they have to be talking about about something, right? Is this just their like pet hobby project? And I'd say there is often some validity to that. I mean, we've seen celebrities come out on issues like immunizations and and vaccines and with some sketchy science. And so you should definitely not expect a celebrity just by virtue of their celebrity to know what they're talking about. But what makes the years cast, I think, very different in this respect is that they have done their homework. They are out there, you know, on the ground with the TV crews, whether it's in like South Sudan or in the Amazonian rainforest as it's, you know, drying up or out there in the middle of the oceans looking at acidification and coral bleaching. And when they speak on camera, they are speaking not only from the heart and as a passion project, but with evidence. And the years team does a really careful job through their consulting and their science advisory team. You know, Joe Rom is there is one of their science advisors, and and what that message broadcasts is going to be accurate. So behind the scenes, the producers are doing a really good job of making sure I think that everybody contributes their strength and that the final product is trustworthy. Camilla, I think that we uh, definitely have a place for celebrities and for uh, kind of uh, high visibility uh, folks to to really help bring more awareness to carbon pricing and to climate change. And, and I think the year team has done an amazing job of doing that, uh, especially with the, you know, they really try to hand the limelight and the attention over to uh, to the students and the, the young people that are organizing in this episode, which I, I really uh, applaud. And, and, you know, that I think is what's going to be empowering uh, to the audience or, or to other uh, millennials to take action and get involved. You just also received the uh, Grist 50 award, you know, looking at the put a price on it campaign. There's some other great uh, leaders. I'm looking at it right now, seeing Steph Spears, as well as Gilbert Campbell also uh, being nominated. Um, so with the with that as well, uh, do you have a lot of folks reaching out to you and saying, you know, uh, what can I do? And what's your, what's your response to them? Can we do what, what, especially the, and what can they do in their community? Uh, you know, I, I received this oh, email right. from a student in Toronto, uh, not too long ago, just the, the blanket statement of what do we do? Um, mm, yeah. it's a tough one to answer. It is. It is really tough because politics is local. And unless you are, sort of already involved, you might not know who to turn to or what avenues might be effective. 
And that's really what the Put a Price in It campaign is designed to do, is make answering that question easy. So um, my amazing colleagues, Cassidy Jones in our Portland, Oregon office is our program manager. I mentioned Tom Herb earlier down in Southern California. We've got Bria Whitfield now in Iowa, Paige Atchison, our phenomenal executive director in, in Philadelphia, and then myself in D.C., you know, Almost uh, many regions of the country now have a put a price on it representative, not to mention the, the year's team in New York. And we are working hard to grow local leadership in as many states as possible. Our kind of onboarding process usually entails some sort of a conversation or at least, you know, questionnaire that someone can fill out. You know, how much are they interested in contributing in terms of their time? Are they in a state where there's already a carbon pricing policy that's introduced in the legislature. Michael, I know you're leading the charge in Massachusetts and we've been really excited to work with you because mobilizing students is easy. You know, it's like, well, here's the town halls that are being organized. How many other students can you turn out to ask questions of a legislator um, and show that political support? Same thing in a state like Vermont where um, Sarah Fadum and Lizzie Kahn on our team are doing a really great job preparing an enormous maple leaf mosaic in the spirit of the salmon and getting students, many colleges across the state, to make little cardboard cutouts of their own and they're going to construct it in front of the state capitol as uh, that carbon carbon tax bill advances through the legislature and show legislators that they that there really is this energy behind it. So again, where there's where there are campaigns going, the question is 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 pretty easy. It's like we just want to connect people into the leadership of those campaigns and then provide the support. We have toolkits, you know, how do you do an art project on your own campus? How do you talk to a lawmaker about this issue? How do you organize maybe a little debate between members of your club or maybe something even more public where people can brush up on their advocacy and articulation skills around this, you know, practice, practice, practice. And then if you're in a state where there isn't yet a policy moving, you know, it takes a lot of time to educate people about this policy and no work is wasted. So can you get a screening out there? Can you uh, join up in collaboration with your local CCL? There's a CCL chapter in almost every district in the country. So you're going to find carbon pricing advocates everywhere. And again, where there's not a state campaign, it's still really important to direct attention towards your congressional representatives and, and senators and encourage them to find creative ways to preserve a price on carbon. There's so much going on, or preserve or, or pass. I say preserve because there's so many baseline policies in place that are being threatened by the Trump administration, like the social cost of carbon. You know, the Republicans have been sharpening their knives to come after that, and we need to step up to defend it, not to mention the EPA at in general. So there's so many opportunities for advocacy, no matter where you go. And it's maybe in the places where there are fewer people to begin with that we need the most action. So where do folks go to, um, what's your website? How do, how do folks connect with your organization? Yeah. So, um, our climate.us is our website and right there at the top of the page, there's a sign up box to uh, say you're in. There's also tabs, opportunities for students. You can join as a fellow if you're a college student. That's a stipended, a paid fellowship that is really well supportive. You can join an action team. You can become a field representative. If you're not a student, we welcome you to sign the petition to get involved in your local scene, you know, finding others in the community, again, talking to your representatives, building support, maybe helping with fundraising events to support more 
more young people to come up through the ranks and we welcome volunteers of, of all sorts, you know, again, maybe you can be a social media ambassador. Maybe you can reach out to your network, contribute a blog post. And then the, the put a price on it campaign. If you want to check that out uh, separately, if you go to the climate solution, you can uh, climate solution.com. You can check, check out the resources there. We're building them out so that you have a database of, you know, all possible <laughs> carbon pricing resources and reports. And there's also a, a map that shows where there are action groups and campaigns anywhere in the country. If you're not on that map yet, you can add yourself. And then you can download, again, similar materials, uh, slideshows, uh, student toolkits, um, and, and join to receive updates. And then, of course... We also encourage people to follow us on social media. There's the Our Climate Facebook page and the Put a Price on It campaign. Um, Nikki Reed is still posting weekly. Weekly, she gives over her entire social media account to one of our, our young volunteers who shares a personal story of why this matters to them and why they want to put a price on it. And it's really exciting to see the membership for this idea grow through her incredible social media reach. And the Years of Living Dangerously is a National Geographic series, folks. If you just if folks just Google Years of Living Dangerously, there's multiple places, including YouTube, that they can go and watch episodes. You're in episode number six, in case people are wanting of season two. And one of the things you talked about really struck me when I watched the show. And you talked about the, you know, I think that this whole issue of, of climate change, sustainability, the time that we live in, the you know, the feeling from the current administration, I think really there's a feeling of kind of um, hopelessness in some level and depression from a lot of folks. And you talk a little bit about how you feel really grateful that you have the opportunity to live in a time when you can do something with, that would have such a huge impact on human history. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and how you stay so positive about things? <laughs> well, meditation helps, you know. <laughs> there's one thing that's constant it's change and that's been the case for all of human history i i'm actually serious about that i think that we really do need to invest in our ability to be present and to resource ourselves personally and in community and so um you know as a full-time activist for many years i finally started to feel like i'm coming into a balance of you know, feeding the other parts of myself and, and keeping healthy and whole and balanced and uh, in community. Those things are really, really important. And I think, you know, the energy that exists can around this, this crisis and all of the problems that, that we face now and in the future increasingly, you can do a lot of things with that energy. You know, you can, you can direct it and you can throw your life into doing all the good that you can, or, you know, that same energy can be pulled into a very dark place. And there's a choice. There's a choice somewhere in there. Of course, a lot of it is just really depressing and there's no way around that. But I think that, that we forget the agency that's at our fingertips, you know, instead of, instead of just watching, you know, the news for an hour every night or scrolling through your Facebook feed, like what could you do with that hour or two hours could you actually go out there and, you know, volunteer or host an event or educate yourself about a solution? And that's that's the fundamental orientation is that we've known that the problem has existed, you know, for my entire lifetime. I'm, I'm 29 and just around the time I was born, James Hansen testified to Congress that climate change was real and that it was human caused. And 
the problem has only gotten worse throughout my whole life, but more and more people are waking up and taking action. And I think that comes from refusing to take no as an answer and doing the hard work of of honing your skills and your knowledge base and again making use of this precious time that we have when we're alive on this earth to advance something that we believe in whether or not we win you know the victory is not guaranteed but the effort is in your hands i think on that note camilla that was really i think fabulous thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and 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 most importantly thank you for for all the important work that you do. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's been an honor. So, Michael, this is another great show. Uh, uh, we said we were going to close out these shows with just uh, talking about what caught our what, what in the news caught our eye this week. So, anything catch your eye? Well, one of the things that I'm paying close attention to is the uh, new numbers in uh, from International uh, Energy Association looking at our our national U.S. national coal exports, uh, and that we are down uh, and hitting a low that hasn't been seen since the late 1970s. Uh, this means a lot for Appalachia. This means a lot uh, for some of the current extraction boom towns across the country, uh, especially as more and more states are moving away uh, from coal or fossil fuel-based energy uh, choices. It also shows that the global markets are really starting to do the same. Uh, and it, to me, uh, growing up in a, a community uh, that at one point in time was extremely dependent on the lumber industry, uh, here we are 100 years later and are still having a hard time diversifying our own economy. Uh, so it really uh, is striking a chord uh, and something that I and you know people in upstate New York, I think, certainly can relate to. Um, things that uh, are happening in, in Appalachia uh, and other um, middle of America, or excuse me, states uh, that are based on extraction for their local economy. This is really not something that the Trump administration uh, should be championing at this time. Uh, and it really it starts to uh, build a dark cloud, I think, over what our energy choices are going to be in the future. Uh, but but maybe not so much doom and gloom. Uh, Mike, what, what are you following this week? Yeah, so uh, kind of a related story. I could some call my, my eye in the news about the state of Kansas. It now generates 30% of its energy from wind. And they've invested about $10 billion since 2010. And Sam Brownback is the current governor of Kansas. And he's, he's a very conservative uh, Republican. And he projects that by the end of his term in 2019, he sees the state producing 50% of its energy from renewable sources. And was also kind of interesting, not only like how fast that's happening in a state like Kansas, but also that, you know, he, he said that he sees going forward that there, you know, the need to be doing this, which again, from a conservative Republican governor, I thought that was pretty amazing. So, you know, these big changes, there's winners and losers in all these things. I think, um, you know, as as Kate Meese from the Local Government Commission says, you know, in aggregate, we can look at these pictures and we can see that the renewable energy economy is, is, is better economically for the country. But I think we do need to recognize what you said is there are winners and losers. Now, what are we going to do for the losers? How are we going to help those communities transition? How are we going to help people who are in coal country um, live a, a quality life, right? What are we going to do to try to spur those economies to create new opportunities? And I think that that's a really important issue for those people who care about carbon and sustainability. You also need to care about the people. 
right? And I think that that's just a really important issue for us all to be thinking about. That relates directly to uh, something that I, I picked up on uh, in the Years of Living Dangerously episode that uh, Camila was in, uh, where at the end of the day, uh, the, a lot of this comes down to people's jobs, people's livelihoods, and the communities that they uh, they live in. It's uh, extremely complex, uh, but it's something that we need to be you know really starting to have constructive hard conversations about uh, now. And to me, that's one of the things that's most empowering about the audience that we have uh, have here on the podcast, uh, because so many of you are actively part of that conversation. Michael, thank you for another great episode. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to talking to you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.